Hello, and welcome to the BPL podcast. My name is Josh, and today we have an interview I conducted with Dr. Ness B. Schroff about the fascinating world of artificial intelligence. This includes its history, applications, ethics, and future implications. Whether you're a complete newcomer to the world of AI or a seasoned expert, there will be something for everyone in this enlightening and informative discussion. And with that, I'll turn it over to myself. Dr. Nessa Bishroff, he received his PhD from Columbia, worked at Purdue, and now holds the Ohio Eminent Scholar Chaired Professorship of Networking and Communications at Ohio State University, or The Ohio State University, sorry. He leads the NSF AI Institute on Future Edge Networks and Distributed Intelligence. He served as Editor-in-Chief of um, IEEE. He's been a Technical Program Chair of several conferences, has served on editorial boards, given keynote addresses all over the world been featured on national and international television for his expertise on AI and its societal impacts. And his papers have received um, a ton of awards at top tier venues. And he received the National Science Foundation Career Awards. So thank you so much for taking the time to be here. Um, So first off, I just wondered if you can give us a a little history of, of AI, maybe like kind of the cliff notes Sure. version of, of how, how we got to this moment. Yeah, yeah, be happy to do it. So, I mean, I, I think, um, you know, when you're talking about the history of AI, you know, different people will have a different starting point, okay? Okay. And uh, my starting point is around the 1930s uh, with Alan Turing. Okay. And Alan Turing, you know, for those of you who watch the imitation game, uh, was probably, you know, one of the key founders of computer science and in computing in general. Hmm. And so Alan Turing developed uh, you know, the universal computer, you know, the Turing machine as it's called, uh, in the 1930s. And then later on in the late 40s, early 50s, he developed what is known as the Turing test, which is really also referred to as the, imit- the imitation game. So essentially the idea was can we determine whether a computer is intelligent, whether a machine is intelligent? That was essentially uh, what he was asking. Hmm. And at the end of his analysis, what he said was that it really doesn't matter whether the computer is truly intelligent as long as the computer is able to answer questions or make decisions which are indistinguishable from a human. Hmm. So if the computer is able to do that, then it doesn't matter whether it has innate intelligence. It's sort of an equivalence, and that's what he came up with. And that was you know, sort of one of the first forays into artificial intelligence. Then another key figure is one uh, a person called Claude Shannon. I don't know if any of you have heard of Claude Shannon. He was the founder of information theory. Essentially, everything that we do digitally right now is thanks to Claude Shannon. Hmm. He's the person who invented the bit, you know, one and zero. So all of the digital communications, all of the digital computers were thanks to Claude Shannon. And he created this field called information theory in the 1940s. Uh, and, and so without Claude Shannon, we wouldn't have computing, we wouldn't have communications, we wouldn't have your 
iPhones, your smartphones, your tablets, whatever, right? So, so Claude Shannon is a very, very important figure in, 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 in AI and in, in digital technologies in general. Mm. Uh, the, most people, when they talk about AI, they point to a conference called the Dartmouth Conference that happened around 1956, I believe. And at that conference, uh, there was a program called the Logic Program. I think, uh, the, uh, I, I forget the exact name, but essentially the idea of this program was it was developed to mimic human intelligence. And what it did in 1956 was it proved 32, I believe, of the 50 key theorems uh, of a particular mathematical you know, a book, you know, very famous Principia. And one of the theorems that it proved, it came up with a very unique proof that no human had come up with. Hmm. And this was in 1956. So this was a pretty revolutionary step in, in AI. So people usually point to that time uh, as being the start of AI. And since then, AI has gone through ups and downs. So the 1960s the, was sort of the summer of AI. Lots of activities, lots of funding, lots of potential. And then you, we found out that, okay, well, you know, computers were not that sophisticated. We didn't reach the potential of AI. And then the funding went away and it kind of went down. And then again, you know, in the 70s, again, there was a lot of potential with neural networks and then so on and so forth. And then again, funding went away. So there have been ups and downs throughout, you know, between, I would say, the, the 60s and about the 2000s, 2010. And then one inflection point happened. Number one, computers became much more sophisticated mm. than they are right now. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you had a lot of computing power which enabled AI. And two, can somebody guess what was the other thing that happened in the 2010s which made AI happen? Yeah, the, the, you know, basically, data-rich environment. You had things like the iPhone that mm -hmm. emerged. You had lots of data that you could use in order to make predictions, in order to uh, uh, do things. Social networks started to emerge, and they mm -hmm. wanted to kind of have a model for survival, so they developed the recommendation systems and so on. So that was another big step in the evolution of AI. Mm. And then, you know, even during the winters of AI, there was steady progress in AI. For example, uh, when I was at Purdue, IBM developed Deep Blue, you know, which was a, a mechanism, an expert system, which beat the great Gary Kasparov, right, in chess. Now, Gary Kasparov was not only the world champion of chess, he was so much better than, you know, the second, third, fourth, fifth. It wasn't funny, right? He could, he could beat everyone very, very easily in the height of his prime. It was unthinkable that a computer would beat him, but it did. Mm. And so that was a big progress. But the bigger progress happened in 2016 when AlphaGo beat the world champion in a game called Go. And this game called Go, unlike chess, was thought to be impossible for a computer to beat because it just had an infinite amount of variables. And so people thought, well, chess, you can do a lot of enumeration and solve it, mm -hmm. but Go will not. And so that was a big, you know, a, 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 a big advancement in AI, reinforcement learning in particular. And then, of course, the 
that the you know the advent of chat gpt i think just blew the whole thing up yeah and it seems like now yeah. the 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 soil is so fertile yeah data rich environment computers are cheaper now and more sophisticated yeah. and it's just like exponential right right growth now. i think there's been exponential and there's been some technological innovations like you know this technology called transformers basically created a new way of developing neural networks which allowed for real advancement to take place in these large language models like ChatGPT and BARD and so on that you mm -hmm. see today. You mentioned uh, Deep Blue when you were at Purdue. Yeah. Um, can, you, can you just talk about like when you first came across this technology and what made you decide to like commit your whole career to it and then you know uh, through now which you're working at AI Edge and talk right. about that work you're doing now. Sure, sure. Uh, so actually, I mean, you know, you know, I came to the U.S. in 1984 from India, and I hadn't seen a computer, let alone, you know, AI. So I had no idea what, uh, you know, uh, what AI was all about. The first time I heard AI was essentially a a, a person that uh, uh, was at a party who was dating a close friend of mine, and he was a PhD student in computer science from France, and he showed me some cool things he was doing with a language called Lisp on AI. That's cool. the first time I basically, you know. And then when I was doing my masters, uh, there were some folks in my in my uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, in, in my group who were working on using neural networks to solve large-scale problems. So that was another exposure where I really started to sort of get exposed a little bit to AI. And then when I started my PhD, I was actually going to use neural networks for a problem called fault detection in large-scale systems. And so you know, that you know, got me very interested uh, in, in AI. And then at that time, neural networks were really out of vogue. Mm. They were really kind of on the way down. And I was given very sage advice by a person who used to work at Bell Labs who said, I don't think you should do your PhD in this area. And he was right. And I didn't. And then I worked in this area called communication networks. Mm. That was essentially my PhD and then my first job and my second job at Ohio State, all of this was in communication networks, not in AI. Okay. But the tools that I was using for designing and controlling these communication networks were tools that involved probability, involved optimization, involved making decisions, controls, predictions, and things like that. So about 10 years ago when I moved completely to, I mean, when I moved some of my research to AI, it was a pretty smooth transition. Okay. Because these were tools that I could use in AI as well. And you're hitting on a ton of things I want to get to in a sure. little bit. But before, I want, to, I want to set some context a little bit where, can you just talk about, like, as if we're children, how AI works? So uh, you talked about you know chess masters and go masters getting beaten, and from what I've heard, it's not like you just program in the rules, right? You just show them a bunch of games and they analyze them, and that's how they yeah. you know, and then they're adapting as they Correct. go. So can you just talk about like sure, as if I'm five? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How yeah, does it work? Absolutely. So there are, so I, first thing I should say is that uh, you know AI is a very very big field, so it's not really a monolith. There are hundreds of different AIs. Okay, each, you know, so it's, it's very hard to say, explain to me AI and I can kind of give you a, a really kind of a, a, a simple way of, but the question you ask is a good one. You know, how do you, for example, design, say, let's say, 
uh, uh, you know, games that could, say, beat somebody at chess or beat somebody at Go. Mm -hmm. So these are called dynamic AI. So that's different from static AI, which is used for, say, image classification, et cetera. So in this dynamic AI, what happens is that you develop what are known as reinforcement learning techniques, where essentially you get a reward okay, for coming close to solving a puzzle or coming close okay. to winning a game. So essentially, if you're playing chess, let's say, you would get points or reward for taking the opponent's piece. Okay? And then you would lose points or be penalized when you lost your piece. That would be the way in which the, the game would be set up. And there'd be rules that you, know, you can't basically take your rook and jump from one end to another, et cetera. So the rules of the game are well defined. Okay. Now, what, so these, uh, you know, when, when, you, when, the, when this reinforcement learner, this AI plays this game, it's observing what are the kinds of actions that I'm taking that are making me get a lot of points. And then it plays the game over and over and over again to learn the set of actions that will accumulate the most points. Now, interestingly, what it will do is it will make decisions that could be bad for the current time. And that's what we call in the learning parlance exploration. So what we do is we know that if I take this rook, I will get a certain number of points but maybe I don't want to take this rook. Instead, let me give up my rook and lose some points mm. in order to see if I can take the opponent's queen in the next step, right? So I'm exploring this. So there is this, 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 this process of exploration that goes on. And that's very, very fundamental to developing good reinforcement learning algorithms. So essentially what you're doing is you're making suboptimal decisions right now in order to figure out what is best for the future. And so as the computer plays more and more of these games, it gets to understand what are better and better strategies. And that's how it can beat Gary Kasparov, right. or in the case of Go, it can beat the Go Masters. And you say that it, it does it over and over and over again. Yeah. Can you just give me an idea, like how many times is it, is it doing it? So I don't know the specific times, for, because it will be dependent on the game, but there are lots of strategies that basically uh, reduce the number of, you know, that are, that are meant precisely to uh, do the perfect balance between what is known as exploration and exploitation. So, you know, in order to reduce the number of times it has to be trained uh, in order to get the optimal kind of strategies. Okay. So this could be thousands of times, though, right? you okay. know, and you know, could be tens of thousands of times. Okay. You know, in depending on the complexities of the of the games, but it doesn't have to be, let's say, trillions of times. So if you did it in a random way, if you did it in just like you know in a brute force way, you could mm -hmm. end up being you know like tens of hundreds of trillions of times, and you simply don't have the computing time to do that. Right. So you do it in a strategic way in order to reduce that hundreds of trillions of times to maybe tens of thousands of times or, or, or thousands of times. So that's, that's what we do. That's part of the, the process, the intelligent process of reinforcement learning. Cool. Mm -hmm. So let's, I, I want to talk about some of the problems sure. um, that people have brought up with, with mm -hmm. AI and experts I've, I've 
seen bring up some of these. So uh, the ones I've seen, I, I picked three that I thought were important that get talked about the most or maybe are most important to, to our life here is large-scale disinformation, job loss, and, and loss of control. So I'd like to hit these kind of one by one. Sure. So, so with, with large-scale disinformation, AI currently has, well, ChatGPT uh, currently has a problem, a hallucination problem. Can you talk about the hallucination problem and how do we safeguard ourselves against this inf yeah. disinformation? Yeah, so hallucination is the one part of disinformation which I would call benign disinformation, all right, where essentially it's the imperfection of the current large language models which, re which sort of re results in hallucination. So basically the idea with these large language models is the following. It, what it does is it you know, takes a stream of information and it's trying to predict the next word. Okay, predict what, you know, so if you ask it a question, it says, what is the most plausible answer? And then if its data set doesn't have a good plausible answer, it might give spit out some random answer. So there are times, for example, when I will ask ChatGPT, give me the three most important references in a field. And it will spit out references which seem quite normal. Convincing. Convincing. Yeah. But are totally wrong. Okay, and when I go on Google, I can never find them, for example, right? Mm -hmm. So obviously they're not. And so <clears throat> it does things like that. And so that can be resolved by normal cross-referencing. Firstly, that's a problem mm -hmm. that I think these large language models can themselves resolve by giving you know, more varied data and kind of you know, improving upon various things. So one is from a designer's point of view, but from a user's point of view, whenever you have a new technology, what would you do, right? You, before, you know, when you try to use it, make sure that it's working pretty well, right? So if it's something which, you know, you're, you're trying to search, you know, you basically say, okay, this is good information, let me just verify that it's correct, and so I can verify okay. some aspects of it or from, you know, a trusted source, that's one. If you're, say, using ChatGPT to write a code, you don't want to put that code in a production system, you want to first test it out, make sure it's working correctly, and then put it right. So that's, that's another thing. So there are things that you can do. It's the second type of disinformation where, which worries me much more, which that's is where right. you are you know, actively creating disinformation which is coming now at zero cost, right? Because you can basically, I mean, ChatGPT has some safeguards against that, but mm -hmm. they're, they're, I'm, you, know, you can always create AI tools that won't have those safeguards or will have those safeguards removed. And then you actively create disinformation, which could you know, exacerbate some of the problems that we already have with polarization and so on uh, right. uh, in, in this country. So I'm, I'm much more worried about the active disinformation than the, yeah. than the hallucination. Yeah, there's the hallucination, which is the mach machine side of it. Right. And then the human side of it is like, it's hard to yeah. com to combat that. So, yeah. I mean, I would you just suggest the same safeguards for both, right? Like research, you know, yeah. verify a trusted resource. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're getting into a political, yeah. you know, cycle, which is already yeah. getting, yeah. you know, ugly. And you can, you can imagine political ads where somebody's doing something heinous, or you know, um, their yeah. political rival, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it's just a matter of verifying in your eyes. It's verifying it, and it's and that's one thing which is becoming, which is going to become harder and harder because, the AI technology is getting already very good at developing images, for example, that would be 
hard to determine whether they are real or fake. And we expect these deep fades to generate videos which are going to be very difficult to determine whether they are, they are you know, mm -hmm. that they're fake or real. So this is, a, this is something which we have to be concerned about. The only hope that I have is that if people kind of band together, we could potentially overwhelm the good information using these AI tools mm. to kind of push out the disinformation. That's one possibility. Yeah. Uh, um, but the way the social networks have been designed and their, their priorities and the way the revenue models for these social networks are, it doesn't give me a lot of confidence that that's going to happen because mm -hmm. The social network revenue model is how do I keep Neshroff on my system as long as possible? And if I can show Neshroff the most provocative news item or the, you know, it doesn't matter whether it's true or false, then he or she is much more likely to, to stay there. Yeah, that's emotional the, reactions. Yeah, yeah, that's the problem, yeah. So the, the one thing that I've been hearing about the most is job loss. And I feel like that's been getting the most media attention to. Um, what, what, in your eyes, what kinds of jobs are in danger of being replaced, and what kind of jobs are, are safe? Yeah. So this is a very difficult question to answer, because we are sort of at the very beginning, I think, of this AI revolution that's really taking place. And uh, it's, it's very hard to determine which jobs are safe. Yeah. Uh, but um, I think that. I suspect that regarding your first question, I, I would imagine that jobs that are probably most vulnerable are jobs that have things that are being done which are repetitive. You know, things in perhaps in manufacturing or data entry, things like that, those mm -hmm. would be quite vulnerable. Other jobs that could be vulnerable would be like, you know, where the parameters are relatively easy to define and the you know, the, you know, they are kind of doing things that are simple decision making. You know, like making a will, for example, right? I don't think, you can, you can tell ChatGPT to make a will, and it'll do a pretty good job, right? You can mm -hmm. ask, uh, you, know, you know, even things like you can ask it to do simple programming for you. And it does a reasonable job. Not always perfect, but if you know a little bit of programming, you know, you can, you can use it quite effectively. So, so, you know, if you look at GPT-4, it, I don't know what, I mean, I, rem I don't remember the exact number, but it scored pretty high in the LSAT exam. Mm -hmm. So, for example, for a lot of the stuff that what lawyers do, it does pretty, pretty good yeah, job. So, so, right? Yeah. And even, you know, uh, AI, I can see, for example, in the future, you know, being enabling robots to do surgeries that humans can't do. Certainly, for example, you know, interpreting images in terms of radiology, yeah. you could certainly do. So there are lots of jobs, both blue collar and white collar, that are you know, potentially in trouble. But the good news is that if we look at the history of technology development, we've always had tremendous job losses whenever you've had a disruptive technology. But it's also opened up a whole area of new jobs that were mm. previously uh, not there, right? So yeah. I would say people should, you know, learn to use AI like a tool, like you would with a calculator, right? And allow, that would allow you to do things which are more creative and more impactful, et cetera. 
Yeah, and I'd like to take that analogy one step further because I heard this uh, recently. Someone said that the steam engine was to muscle as AI is to the brain. So, um, you know, almost all adults worked in farming. 90% of Europeans right. were farmers before the Industrial Revolution. And then that happened, Industrial Revolution, we have tractors, we don't need all these people doing all this, like you said, you know, work, mundane work, the same thing over and over and over again. We have these machines. So people went into offices and started doing mental work. Right. So that, that's kind of how you're thinking about it. Um, do, you, do you think, so do you think there'll be like jobs created that we can't even think of in the future? Yeah, like, I mean, I, I can see that there'll be jobs created where AI now becomes a collaborator with you rather than, you know, taking yeah. over your job necessarily, but, yeah. you know, and so it might make you more efficient. Okay, and, so on. and we'll come back to that too, sure. the, the, the tools part of it. Yeah. So, so lastly, um, another problem I've heard of is loss of control. And I think, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like part of the fear is, is we've seen this movie before. You know, 2001 A Space Odyssey is my, one of my favorite movies. And when HAL 9000 doesn't open the pod bay door, doors, you know, it's still chilling to this day. He like took over, you right. know? Um, so, you know, what, what, let's get dark. What's the worst case scenario? Are we, are we overestimating this technology or are we underestimating what, what can happen? Yeah, again, I mean, this is very hard to predict. Uh, I think that uh, it's, I mean, there are many dark scenarios that I can think of, which are sort of end-of-world scenarios okay. with AI. Okay. Okay. But I How think. How close are we but, to those? But, <laughs> <laughs> but, but, but I think I, th I, I think the the key is that uh, we should be aware of those scenarios and make sure that we establish guardrails either through regulation or standardization or otherwise. Uh, that make sure that the systems that we are designing are trustworthy, uh, they are systems that you know, operate in an ethical way, uh, et cetera. So I think we can put in the guardrails such that you know, this loss of control type of yeah. situation doesn't, doesn't occur. And, right. and we've seen Chat GPT do this right. over the past couple versions right. where it's like, you know, you can't just put in something ridiculous Correct. like how to make a bomb and it tells right. you, you know, right. they've Put yeah, although how to make a bomb you can get on the internet probably. Yeah, right, 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 just right, right, right. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And there's just Googling it. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, speaking of regulation, so the CEO of OpenAI, Sam Altman, he, he did say that the developers at his company are, are a little scared of the technology. Those are his words. You know, how do you feel scared about the potential of AI? Yeah, I mean, I think this is something which has been debated a lot, right? I mean, I think yeah. there has been like a six-month moratorium on AI that people mm -hmm. have proposed. and So I'm, you know, I'm more of a pragmatist, okay, in the sense that, look, things that we are not going to be able to do, why are we spending a whole lot of time debating, right? It's essentially going to be, in my opinion, very, very difficult to keep a moratorium on AI unless we get... China, Russia, India, all of these countries to sign off like a nuclear pact. Mm -hmm. and, and given the international environment that we live in, I, I find that very, very hard yeah. uh, for that to happen, right? So there's an alternative, which I think Jan LeCun 
the CEO of uh, um, uh, uh, the chief uh, officer, I'm using the wrong title, but anyway, he's a yeah. very famous Big uh, 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 guy at Meta has proposed, and he suggests uh, an alternative where he provides the Meta or Facebook's source code for large language models to be out in the open. So everything is out in the open, essentially, mm. and that's, that's what he is proposing, and then essentially have standardization. And I personally think that that's an interesting approach. I'm, I don't know enough about this, uh, you know, uh, issue to really weigh in because there are people who've thought about it a lot more than I have. Uh, uh, however, I personally think that a moratorium will be difficult to achieve in practice. That's that's what I will say. But there are, yeah. you know, you can make up your own mind. I mean, there are very interesting debates online on on this issue, and I can see both points of view. Yeah, and the EU uh, committee just, just approved some regulations, and I think they just maybe went through the first phase of passing it yeah. today or yesterday. Um, it, and they, it, it basically just does things to categorize AI into levels of risk to require security checks and, um, and makes it, kind of limits the range of activities. So from self-driving cars to hiring decisions, bank lending, school enrollment, so uh, it, it would kind of cover all of these as high risk. Do you think, I don't know if you're familiar with these, these regulations that they just um, you know, passed, do you think this has gone far enough? Do you think we need more regulation? Do you think we need the government to step in to regulate? Uh, um, so I, I have to admit I'm not an expert in this area. This is not my field, but I have you know, looked at it and, and I think that as a legal structure, I think this is a great first step. Because what it's done is it's identified AI which is high risk and identified AI which is low risk. So for example, it makes more sense to have oversight on let's say a medical diagnosis AI tool versus a tool that's gonna recommend a movie on Netflix, right? I mean, mm -hmm. so clearly, right, you want something like that. So I think it's a, it's a very good you know, first step. Now whether those kinds of regulations can happen in the US when they've never happened before or yeah. very rarely happened before is, uh, uh, yeah, uh, I'm not very confident <laughs> yeah. of that. Well, in the, in uh, especially in today's political climate, I'm not confident of that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I think there's several things we can do even without, even without this type of regulation, right? First thing is standardization. So this is something which is done all the time in industry. Okay, so you know, like I work in the communication network fields, we have very clear standards on how things should come, you know, operate with each other, you know, what are you know safety issues, et cetera, et cetera. So these can be standardized and companies can essentially, you know, follow these rules that we want AI to be trustworthy. We want to make sure that AI is ethical, you know, you know, it sort of, you know, it doesn't, it reduces bias, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So this can be standardized, you know, even without, uh, you know, regulation that's coming from, from the government. So I think that's definitely part. The other one is accountability. So this is where, let's say, you are using AI to make uh, self-driving cars, and if the cars crash, who is to blame? Right. Right. You need a legal framework to ensure that we've developed a set of tools that make you know 
people accountable for what they are throwing out there, right? So, you know, this is why I'm very skeptical of these self-driving technology, even though I drive a Tesla, I, I'm very skeptical of these self-driving technologies which claim fully self-driven, but they're really not, yeah. you know, uh, yep. uh, they're, they're very dangerous. So I think, so those are the kinds of things where I think accountability is, is really important. And then third thing, if we're gonna do regulation, do it in a way in which it's adaptable in, you know, as essentially more information comes in and, you know, doesn't uh, stifle innovation, et cetera. Yeah, and you were mentioning the moratorium, a bunch of tech leaders, if anybody's not familiar, um, they signed an open letter calling for a six-month pause on the development right. of the most powerful kind of AI systems. So the way you said it, it, it kind of seems like there's three, three groups that can kind of help regulate this or create standards. So there's like, there's governments, there's tech leaders, and there's these companies. Mm -hmm. Who do you have the most faith in to, to do that? I mean, it's, it kind of seems like you... So there's a mixture of tech leaders and, 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 and companies, and companies that, right. that do it. And that's essentially how almost all standardization happens, right? So there are okay. various standard bodies, you know, governed by the IEEE, ACM, you know, things. These are, you know, worldwide bodies that kind of come in an agreement. And, you know, there is, you know, companies that have more cloud usually, you know, get what they want in the standard bodies. But, but nonetheless, there is, you know, input from a, from a lot of... Uh, a, a lot of other companies and a lot of other leaders as well. Okay. Yeah. So, so now that we've gone over some of the problems, let's move to the optimist view of this. Of this. So what, what would you say is AI technology that's already implemented in our everyday lives that, that we don't know that's AI technology? Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you, if you search something on Google and you type in, you know, your query, uh, Google gives you the top 10 items, right? So these top 10 items depends on you know, their classification, their, their understanding of what is the best match for what you've asked for. And that requires you know, AI to be there inside, you know, making these decisions. So that would be one. Uh, <coughs> those annoying ads that you see on Facebook and Google, mm -hmm. those are bread and butter AI. They are like reinforcement learning. They're targeted ads specifically for you. You know, because you Googled, you know, Hawaii vacation or Hawaii, they all of a sudden assume you want to go there and they'll basically have something for you. But more than that, they might show you some other things that you might be interested in because they say, okay, this person likes the beach and therefore they might give you ads related to that or you okay. might, right? So, so there's a lot of that that is, is also all AI. Your smartphone has so much AI in it. You know, the camera has AI in it. You know, the apps have AI in it. Siri, Alexa, and all of these, you know, voice assistants have AI built in it. Your email, you know, the spam filter has AI in it. Yeah, in, yeah. in, in, my, in my Google email, too, I'll start writing a sentence. Yeah, and, and then it kind of, like, yeah. has a light gray, like, yeah. do you want, is this what you were going to say? Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah right. that was good what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah. yeah, it knows. Um, also, uh, I, I read an article that Dispatch just released, and you may have seen this, that there's a Wendy's in Columbus the, the drive-through is you're talking to an AI robot oh. to take your order, oh. and so they only have cooks in this Wendy's. I don't know which which Wendy's in Columbus yeah. that is, but yeah. if anybody knows, like email me. Um, yeah, I'd like to know too. Yeah, yeah right. I'd like to go through and see how good it is. Um, 
Okay, so what are our shared goals as a society with this technology? What are we hoping to eventually accomplish? Where's the kind of finish line? Um, I don't know if I, you know, there is a finish line per se, but you can think of, you know, AI as enabling a lot of things that, you know, uh, humans uh, are not good at, you know, recognizing patterns, you know, things of that nature. So, for example, you know, making predictions based on complex patterns, AI is very good at. It's a little bit like, you know, humans are not very good at computing compared to a computer, right? Right. So, so similarly, you know, there are things that AI does, and therefore this could be very useful in medical diagnosis, you know, creating new drugs, uh, basically, you know, making early, you know, uh, decisions on whether somebody might have early stage cancer, heart disease, you know, et cetera. So it's certainly, you know, very useful there. Another big, big application of AI that I see that I'm personally very excited about uh, is uh, uh, the uh, personalized education, especially mm. for uh, children from underdeveloped countries. So, you know, if, if those of you who haven't followed, you know, Sal Khan from the Khan Academy, uh, he has this beautiful YouTube video you should all listen to where he has incorporated GPT-4 into his AI, you know, into his system. And he has personal assistance for tutoring in a variety of different disciplines uh, that students can access with a tablet or, hmm. you know, or a computer. And essentially the idea is that this AI tool becomes like a teacher for the student. Rather than giving it the solution, it sort of provides you know, prompting provides hints, you know, has the, you know, and what they found is that when you have personalized education, you improve your scores by two standard deviations. So it's, it's very, very significant in terms of its impact on education. And I can, I can say, you know, in my, my personal friends group, you know, we have friends who've adopted children from, you know, very underprivileged backgrounds, and they are doing incredibly well. And, 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 and it's just amazing that you see that, you know, there's so much human potential that's gone to waste because those two are lucky that they got adopted. But, you know, their friends, their, you know, their, their kin, you know, has not, right? And, and they are essentially in an entirely different environment. Mm -hmm. So I think AI has the potential to really improve the human condition. Uh, through education, I, I think that's a that's a very big one. Yeah. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, there are things like you know, you know transportation, you know, agriculture, you know, you know, you know, solving big problems, etc. Et yeah. Yeah. No, that's very optimistic. Yeah. You you ran through the last three yeah. optimistic questions I had. That was great. So I'm yeah. just going to open it up to the audience sure. now. Uh, if anybody has any questions, I think Zach has a mic. So just speak into the mic so that uh, everybody <coughs> at home who's watching on the stream can hear you too. Sure. And, uh, and while that's happening, um, I'm going to be noisy and I'm going to uh, get ready for our quiz. Sure. Thank you. Um, do you think that artificial intelligence is a good name for what we are talking about? Because artificial to me makes it sound so strange and not human, but it is basically human just with a perfect memory. Um, I was just wondering if you think artificial makes it something like threatening or fake. 
the um, name? I, I, I suppose, you know, uh, one could call it uh, non-organic, I guess, right? That might be a good name. Yeah, I mean, machine learning is, is something which is pretty much taken over quite a large space in AI these days. And so that's a, you know, a lot of what we do really is machine learning. And so yeah, that's, that's a, you know, I, I, I suspect that the reason why the original name was given was because the, uh, you know, the, the intelligence uh, was not human intelligence. That's, that's probably why, yeah. But you're right in the sense that it's imbued with our intelligence, right? We are the ones that have created it. <clears throat> Hi, Ness. Hey. So do you have any insights or opinions on BlackRock's quantum computer, Aladdin? I'm and sorry? Do you have any insights or opinions on the capabilities and power of BlackRock's quantum computer, Aladdin, and its abilities and what it can do so quantum and what it is doing? Yeah, I mean, quantum, com uh, quantum computing is a little bit, you know, outside of my field of expertise, but it has significant potential in you know, solving problems that are currently computationally infeasible. Right? So there is, you know, people have been talking about using quantum computing to, let's say, break uh, you know, security guardrails that we right now have, right? The computing, you know, secu you know basically, <coughs> security right now is, is protected by, uh, you know, essentially combining products of large prime numbers. Mm. So the idea is that, you know, it's very, very difficult to factor products of large prime numbers unless you know what the other prime number is, and that's how things are done. So one of the big applications of quantum computing is, is doing that. Fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you have any opinion? I'm assuming you know who Yuval Noah Harari is. Yeah, I do. Do you have any opinion on his statement of the equation B times C times D equals AHH. I, I don't know if his opinion on B times C times D, but I, I find his books to be quite uh, fascinating, and yeah. he's a pretty good sort of technological historian, and he's, okay. uh, you know, he's written about the dangers of AI, and, and he's written about the dangers of essentially you know, having a situation where uh, artificial intelligence uh, 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 could you know create significant inequities in the world, and and he certainly has a point. I don't disagree with his point. Uh, well, uh, for the for the audience that may not know, I mean that equation is biological information times computing power times data equals the ability to hack humans, and he's very serious when he talks about this, and so that's why I'm asking you because yeah. I know you know way more than I do. So yeah. I just wonder what your uh, personal opinion is of this. Is he just speaking out of fiction? I mean, what is he really, is, I mean, is he just insane? I, I mean, he has a certain premise, right? And I think, the, uh, I think that if AI and systems were left completely unregulated, uh, I, I think the scenarios that he's pointing out to are feasible. Right? I, I think, you know, you basically, there are people who believe that AI is going to become sentient and more powerful than us. We are nowhere close to that, by the way. You know, I think AI is going to become increasingly more powerful, but whether AI becomes sentient is, is unclear at, at the moment. Uh, can AI be used for significant harm? Yes. 
can computers be used for significant harm? Yes, as you know, right? Uh, so, uh, you know, it's like any other technology as far as I'm concerned. It can be used for significant good uh, and it can be used for significant harm and we need to make sure that we have the appropriate guardrails in place so that significant harm doesn't come, you know, come about. How do we do that? Who's the we that ensures this? So I think the collective we, so I think all of us have to basically, you know, ensure that, uh, you know, that the technology is developed in a way in which, you know, appropriate standards are in place so that, you know, AI is safe. So, you know, for example, I'm working on, you know, some provably safe reinforcement learning types of solutions. I think it's a very, very important area. We, we, we certainly need to make sure that you know, the systems that we operate are safe. We also need to make sure that the data that we feed into it doesn't emphasize the biases that we already have. So those are the kinds of things that we, we have to do. And, and companies are, by the way, I, I should say that companies do take this very seriously. And this is not something which is, uh, uh, you know, is, is disregarded, you know, because they, their reputations are also at stake, right? And do you have, my last question, I'll give yeah. it up. My, do you have any opinion on um, Elon Musk's Neuralink and how AI will be implemented for that? Because it's been approved to be <sighs> tested on humans at this point. I'd rather not answer questions about Elon Musk. We can avoid Elon Musk and just talk about the technology of Neuralink <laughs> and what you think of it. Yeah. I, Again, uh, you know, the technology is not out there yet, right? So it's it's hard to hard to know. I mean, he's been he's you know he's been pushing. I mean, Elon Musk, by the way, in, in fairness, he he did contribute to OpenAI. I mean, he was one of the you know one of the founders of OpenAI. He, he, you know, so so you know he has you know he has done things which are uh, uh, which are sensible, but. I'm, I'm afraid, I'm, I'm very concerned about where he's going right now. Yeah. 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 I just was curious, being a relatively aware and intelligent person, this is a lot of it going way over my head. And I'm thinking like, what credentials do people need to have to be qualified to not only develop these guidelines, guardrails you talk about, but also to be able to police it and hold people accountable. Yeah, um, I, I, I think the, so f the first thing I think one, one should do is, you know, read the, the, the literature that's out there. Uh, so, you know, I think the, a good place to start would be this EU AI Act. I think it's a very, it's a very nice, uh, 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 you know, let's say first step towards AI regulation. Now, the EU may adopt it, and that might force some other, you know, uh, companies to adopt it because the EU has a very large market. And so what will happen is that if companies want to play in the EU space, they need to adopt it, right? And so, and, and therefore sort of be adopted. And this adoption, I'm hoping, will sort of become standardized. But this would be a good place to start. Uh, I do think that, uh, and this is where my own expertise is relatively uh, uh, slight, uh, is that AI 
regulations uh, is are you know areas where I think you know folks from law need to be involved, folks from public policy need to be involved. So these are you know and and we need to have a forum where they interact with the technologists uh, in order to make sure that the guidelines that they are proposing are reasonable uh, and also enforceable and also uh, 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 practical, right? That is, they are adoptable. So, so these are the kinds of things that, that we need to be involved in, yeah. But I think there's quite a bit of literature out there uh, on AI ethics, and, uh, uh, which, which is worth you know, looking into. In fact, it's a, there is a whole entire field of AI ethics which is actually quite important. And, 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 and uh, I think it's, it's reasonably accessible, let's put it that way. You know, we have consciousness from our brain, and I, I guess we don't exactly have any idea where that came from. But I've heard a theory that it's just because we have so many, so much intelligence in here, so many neurons connecting. And do you think AI is gonna get to a point where, it, you know, with more curve and everything like that, where it just gets so sophisticated that it's gonna be, have a consciousness too? That's the trillion dollar question that uh, 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 I, I wish I had a good answer to. I, I don't know whether AI is going to have consciousness. Uh, it's not even clear to me that that is necessarily the right question. I think the question is, will AI be able to do things in much the same way that we can? Uh, I'm probably more confident that that will happen. I think, uh, I think AI will probably be able to you know, make decisions like we do, will be able to parse you know, information the way we do, probably in some ways much better and probably in some ways much worse. So the good news, I mean, I, I don't know how, how, whether you, you want to consider this good news and bad news, but uh, you know, I just talked about AlphaGo, you know, this, this program that was generated which beat the, the world champion in Go. And then they created some other program following it, which basically learned by playing itself very, very quickly and beat AlphaGo. Okay, right, right. And that became, you know, like this incredible achievement. Turns out that recently a Go player who is not a world champion, but who is, I think, I think sort of an amateur good player, found a way of beating that program. Okay, so you know humans obviously are also capable of adaptation, right? And so it shows that you know AI is not necessarily you know even in this particular regard, it's not necessarily always better than humans. And I think another yeah. thing to yeah. keep in mind that, that I've read a lot about is is narrow intelligence versus general intelligence. Yeah. In some of like these programs that can beat a chess master. They can't beat a five-year-old at tic-tac-toe. Correct. They don't understand the rules, right. so they don't have a general intelligence. Right. They're really, really good and hyper-focused on chess, and that's right. it. Yeah. So there's that part of it too, and same thing with Chat GPT. It's a language model, and it's really good at language, but it's not necessarily good at you know telling you factual things. Uh, right, right, right. I mean, it, like, what, I mean, what it does is basically it's processing. You know, it's it's essentially Chat GPT is essentially responding to information in its database yes. and making decisions. That's true. 
However, is it that different from us? I mean, we are processing information within our own database yeah. and making decisions, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, I mean, the whole area of general intelligence is, is one which, uh, you know, people are working towards, uh, okay? Yeah. Are getting away from expert systems. Uh, but certainly we are not there. I mean, so, I mean, I, I, I mean, you know, there are, there are some folks, like this Google engineer who claims that he thought AI was sentient and, and so on. Uh, I'm skeptical. Okay, I promise one more question. So does somebody have one more short question before we do quiz? Okay, go ahead. So uh, I don't know much about AI. So from your talk, it seems to me that AI, what it gives us is related to things that happened in the past on things that are already there. Like it takes the information it observes. But, um, and we were talking about consciousness. So I was wondering, as far as creativity and imagination, because uh, coming up with new ideas, is that something that AI can do? Um, so, uh, yes. Uh, so, so, so I, I'll, you know, again, uh, you know, in, in playing games, for example, what AI has shown is that their way of playing is quite different from the way a human grandmaster plays a game. And so they come up with strategies that are quite different from our strategies. So in that sense, it is, you know, it has shown some degree of creativity uh, uh, in, in, in producing, producing new things. Now, you know, whether it will show creativity in different contexts, uh, we don't know. I think for sure, it will be able to find new solutions to problems, like the protein folding problem, you know, which is a classical problem that you know has been around for a long time. Uh, you know, this new pro, you know, recently I think two three years ago, DeepMind produced uh, I forget AlphaFold, which solved this problem uh, that typically takes you know a PhD student an entire PhD to solve for one protein. And this system can solve it for all the proteins, you know. Mm -hmm. And so it's it's quite a significant achievement uh, that that it came up with. So so I think there are problems that that AI can solve, and there are solutions that it can come up with. I don't know whether you might want to call it creative, but certainly different from the way we would go about solving it. So it might come up with a proof, a mathematical proof for a result, which might be quite different from a traditional proof that, that I might come up with. So, so, so in that sense, I guess it is, it is creative. Uh, whether you know, it's creative in some philosophical intelligence point of view, I don't have an answer to that. I mean, that's probably debatable. That's a great segue yeah. too. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I, I made a quiz yeah. for you. If you want to watch Dr. Shroff take the quiz, Head over to our YouTube page. There'll be a link posted in the description. As always, thank you for tuning into the BPL podcast today. I hope you enjoyed it. To find out more about the Bexley Public Library, including upcoming events, visit our website, bexleylibrary.org, or the handle at Bexley Library across all social media platforms. Special thanks to FOMO Deep for lending us their song, Bourbon Neat, for the podcast. Please check out all of their music at fomodeep.com. Email me with any comments, questions, or suggestions at podcast at Thank you.